Right, looks like we're at time, everyone. So welcome back to our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be finishing up chapter 12 today and then getting into chapter 13, talking about the close of the age, the abomination of desolation, and all of that stuff of the end times and what Mark and recording the words of Jesus here is speaking about. But if you'll recall where we left off last week, it's talking about the greatest of the commandments. We had all the scribes, the Pharisees coming out different times here, but then ending off with the greatest of the commandments, that scribe that came up to him and was asking what the most important one is. And then Jesus, you know, says that you are right, or that it is, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, with all your strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourselves. And then the scribe is saying, yeah, you're right, teacher. And Jesus says, yeah, but, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God here. So we talked about that, then talking about whose son is the Christ, that kind of paradox of how can the Messiah be David's Lord and yet David's son. So the divinity and humanity of Christ there. Spoke about that a little bit and then left off in verse 38. So that's where we'll pick up today. Before any of that, we'll begin with the invocation and a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so again, picking up in verse 38. And so Jesus had, you know, just gone with all these different interactions with the scribes and the Pharisees, and then he, uh, Mark notes that no one dared ask him any more questions after this. And so then Jesus really picks up on his teaching here. So in 38, and in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So again, who is he speaking amongst during this time as the scribes and the Pharisees and his disciples and all those people are, you know, gathered around listening to him. And so not that he's been pulling any punches thus far, but now he's calling them by name, not just heavily implying so by use of parables, but he's calling them out specifically of beware of these scribes. So, you know, all the guys that walk around in these long robes, they like all the high praise of, you know, oh, you're the scribe, you know, expert in the law and all these things. So beware of those who would like to walk around and seek those praises. That they would have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts. And so Christ has you know, taught against that previously in other Gospels as well of, you know, don't sit at the highest seat of honor to be told to go lower, but instead be at the lower seat and then be told to come sit at this seat of honor here. Sure. Well, we'll use that as a reason that 
we are just so humble that we sit in the back. And Although many denominations, pro- yeah, they do. Yeah, might as well just take out the front pews. Save some wear and tear and everything, yeah. So yeah, they're the ones I'd want to sit at these places of honor. And then Jesus specifically calls out in verse 40, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. So what is, why is he specifically calling out those who would devour widows' houses and prey on the vulnerable here? But remember, all this speaking about the fig tree, the destruction of the temple, all these things that are coming about, we'd also seen that back in Jeremiah, the warning that the Lord had Jeremiah speak to his people. And so we're going to go back to Jeremiah 7 briefly and look at the warning that the Lord tells Jeremiah to give here. So in Jeremiah 7, beginning in verse 1, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So the Lord is telling Jeremiah to preach repentance, for them to change their ways, to amend their ways, or else, well, the wrath of the Lord is going to come upon them. As we see that here in the Gospel of Mark, of Jesus has been proclaiming, preaching repentance all along, speaking about the withering of the fig tree and how that would happen to the temple in Jerusalem. So he's proclaiming this repentance because all of them are saying, you know, well, we have the temple here, you know. We've got this magnificent temple in Jerusalem. We'll see that here in a few verses and back in Mark. But they've got the temple, so they're set. They're, you know, who needs the Lord? Who needs, all the, who needs to amend our ways? We're, we're sitting mighty fine. If you'll recall my sermon from a few weeks ago of we in this country thinking the same thing, that we're sitting high and, high and mighty here, doing just fine, but was the Lord calling him? Jeremiah to proclaim. Picking up in verse 5. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place and the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. He's saying if you truly amend your ways, if you execute justice, don't oppress the widow, the fatherless, again, the most vulnerable in society here, or shed innocent blood. What's going to happen here in just a few days in Mark's gospel? We're on like Tuesday of Holy Week here. And so the scribes who prey on the widows consume all their food, devour their houses for the pretense of long prayers and just taking all their money from them, what also is going to happen? We see what happened 
in Jeremiah with all of the proclamation of the coming evil in the land and the destruction of Jerusalem there. So those who would oppress the widow, the fatherless, shedding of the innocent blood. And so we see this rehashed here in Mark. Jesus coming along, preaching repentance to these people, but they'd rather go after the false God who did not come in the flesh, their own Yahweh who is still up in heaven and Well, they have their temple, but they don't need God to come down to earth to shed his blood for the forgiveness of their sins. They're they're doing just fine. They've got their leaves that bear no fruit on the fig tree, so that's all fine and good here. And so we see this repeated here back in Mark. These same themes that are happening all throughout Holy Week here of Christ continuously preaching repentance of This is what's going to happen in the next few decades. The Romans are going to come. Jerusalem's going to be decimated. Repent. Amend your ways. Don't oppress the widows. Don't devour their houses. Don't go around thinking you're doing just fine and go out in the marketplaces and just seek this praise. But rather we'll see here in a little bit of when those times do come, flee to the mountains. You know, even if you're on the housetop, don't go back down. Just flee, flee the coming wrath. And so we just see him continuously proclaiming this repentance, calling them to repent. But for those that would continue to seek, you know, this praise and seek to devour widows' houses for pretense, make long prayers, which, I mean, we see in the Roman Catholic Church of, well, you know, pay this X amount of money and you'll get a few years off of purgatory for your dead family member. You know, the same type of thing that's being being done here is still being done within the Roman Catholic Church of, you know, we can just pay your way and we'll take your money and we'll say a few Hail Marys or sacrifice the Mass on behalf of the dead for their sake. But what are they really doing is just devouring widows' houses preying on those who are vulnerable, those who are, you know, grieving the loss of their family members, all for, pre- all for you know, their own wealth, earthly gain for that. Then Christ says they will receive the greater condemnation. Those to whom much is given, much is expected. So the scribes, the Pharisees, all those pastors today, Much is expected, and so if you're going to go around preying on the widows, the fatherless, you know, taking them for all they're worth, well, you're going to be answerable to that, and you're going to, in the very words of Christ, receive the greater condemnation for that. So it's a stark warning for those in the office to not, to first off seek humility and not go around, you know, seeking your own pleasures and your own accolades for what you're doing but then also to not prey on the vulnerable and devour their houses. So any thoughts on that short passage? We've kind of seen these themes pop up, so nothing real new here. Okay. So now we get to the widow's offering. Again, we just had the widows, those who would devour their houses, and now we see 
the widows coming back again here. Verse 41, and he, being Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came, up, came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put, put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So he's resting, sitting by the temp, you know, sitting in the area. He sees the widow put in the widow's mite or these small copper coins, which make up, was the note say like 164th of a denarius, which was 164th of a day's wage. So these just very fractional amounts here that she's putting in, but we see those putting those others putting in large sums. And so we see again this theme in the mark of the first, last, the last, first. We saw that with the scribes here, even just previously, of well, they think they're all high and mighty. They're the first in their minds, but they're going to receive the greater condemnation. Now we see the opposite here of this widow who for all intents and purposes, is the least in view of society of what she have to give to the temple that, you know, she can only give these two small copper coins when all these other people can give great large sums of money, but she is the one put in a higher seat at the feast, if you want to put it that way, as opposed to the scribes who sat themselves in the seat of honor at the feast and are then brought low. She is elevated to that out of her giving of all that she had to live on. And so the applications of this, I mean, is fairly self-explanatory of, you know, the Lord doesn't look at wealth, be a cheerful giver. You know, even if you only have a penny to give or a million to give, give out of your the love for the Lord. Give for what you have. Not that you're to give everything you have to live on, as the widow did here, but be a cheerful giver, you know, the tithing of the 10%. But all this is still fairly self-explanatory here. But we just see, again, this theme of the least to the greatest pop up here. See if there's anything else. And we also see the theme of dependence popping up here. You know, we'd seen that with the children and the rich young man who, you know, he's dependent upon himself or in terms of the children, with the children of be like these children for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Those who have to depend on their parents for everything because they were infants. After all, we looked at the Greek there. And so they can't do anything for themselves. So it's the full dependence on the Lord for all of these things. And so what are these, those who are rich here? Well, they're giving large sums, but they're not putting their trust in the Lord for their daily provisions. They've got their barn stocked full and, you know, we don't need the Lord's provisions. We don't need to trust in him. We've got it all. We've got it all taken care of on our end here. So the Lord is bringing bringing that out. 
for us to reflect on. Again, this idea of trust that the widow gave all that she had to live on, knowing that she would be taken care of. Before we get to questions on that, I want to talk about the division of chapter 13 here. The first first two verses of chapter 13. I know in all of our ESVs, you know, it divides it here in chapters and then also new heading, but it kind of seems out of place. And so we see Jesus, you know, sitting opposite of the treasury, seeing the widow put in all this, and then a division of a chapter, so kind of mentally we're, okay, next scene, you know, let's move on. But then as in 13.1, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so why is it that it just seems out of place here? Why are they so... Why are they marveling so much at the temple? They've seen the temple a number of times. You know, they've been in Jerusalem. Jesus has been teaching, preaching, doing all this stuff. And so why now are they saying, look at these wonderful stones. Look how marvelous this is. What do we just see with the widow's might? Of, well, the widow, she only has two pennies to give. What does she have to give for this marvelous temple? And Jesus is elevating her and putting lower those who would give large sums of money. But then the disciples are saying, Lord, that can't be all that bad, these people giving all these large sums of money. Look at these marvelous stones. Look at this temple and everything. And so they're coming out, and they're kind of pushing back a little bit, it seems. At least I would argue, and I can't remember if it's Veltz or who, I think it may have been Veltz, that brings out this point of them kind of pushing back on Jesus a little bit and saying, well, why shouldn't we be glad of these people giving all these large sums of money? You know, look at all these marvelous stones. Look at this great temple that we've got. Isn't it great that they're giving these large sums? But then Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he's pointing out here, he's trying to reshift their focus of, well, yeah, this is a marvelous temple. It's great that people have given out of their abundance. It's a great blessing to the temple. But all this is going to go away. All of your earthly mammon that you store up in your barns, it's going to go away. Even this temple is going to go away. There won't be one stone left upon another that won't be thrown down. So I'd argue that he's kind of trying to just shift their focus, and then we should kind of read these two passages together here and see what Jesus is doing with those two as opposed to seeing them as divided and new chapter, new heading, new spot in my brain, and, okay, let's think about this one in isolation. But rather, all these texts, you know, there weren't verse divisions, there weren't chapter divisions nor headings or any of that. It was all just one long flowing text. And so how are these, these pieces all fitting together? So we've, I try to highlight that as we've gone along of the fig tree and all these things, speaking about proclaiming repentance and that they would amend their ways. 
So we kind of see these threads moving out and not being so quick to see these just as completely separate incidents and just kind of segment them in our brain here. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Do you guys think that makes sense? Any pushback? After all, the disciples push back on Jesus, so I'm, I'll accept some pushback. Well, I'm not going to push back. That, make, that makes sense to me. Mike, I have a question, though, which is um, when Jesus talks of this destruction to come, is he talking both about what will happen in, you know, around 70 AD or whatever mm-hmm. and the final judgment? That's, that's a take I, I give. Depending on who you talk to, they're going to have different interpretations of this. And we'll go ahead and get kind of looking at that text here. But so for this chapter, you know, we'll see as we go along in chapter 13 of this call to stay awake. You know, be awake, you know, you need know neither the hour nor the day or anything of the coming of the Son of Man. So he's telling them to stay awake. And so, depending on who you talk to, it will be exclusively 70 AD, exclusively end of the age, or yes to both. And so... I mean, the beginning of the destruction has been going on for quite some time. You know what I mean? The temple's been rebuilt and all this stuff, and there's been persecution all throughout. So I don't, I don't know if that would be the... Let's get started in the text, and then we'll look at um, verse 8, and then that may kind of shed some light on, on this. But so starting in uh, Mark 13, verse 3... As he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, so this is east of the temple, up there. Jesus traditionally thought to have been crucified on the west side, and so kind of laying the ground marks there. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished? So it's kind of odd that we randomly see Andrew pop in here. You know, we always see Peter, James, and John kind of being the trio. They go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, all these things of who's going to be the greatest. They're kind of the, the front people here. But then you have Andrew, uh, Peter's brother here. So he's kind of tagging along. So they asked him privately. So they're trying to get the kind of the inside scoop of Okay, well, first they were kind of asking, okay, can we like be on your right and on your left when you come into your kingdom? Can we be in those positions? And now they're saying, hey, hey, Jesus, can you, can you give us a scoop? When's this stuff going to be taking place? And so they're asking him, when will these, all these things be? Or what will be the sign of all these things? And Jesus, of course, doesn't really answer them how they would like Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And so we have this language of seeing. And so we back up in the beginning of chapter 13 of, you know, the disciples looking, look how marvelous all these stones are. He's saying, you know, do you see 
these great buildings. Well, not one is going to be left upon another here. So he's calling them to see those buildings. And then here he is saying, see that no one leads you astray. Be on guard that no one leads you astray. And then as we go on, it will be, you know, stay awake. All of those themes will come up. He's warning them, saying that many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And so there's actually a kind of a double meaning here that's lost in the English. So many will come in my name. What is the divine name? Yahweh, I am. And so many will come in my name, Yahweh, and say, I am he. And so in the English, I don't know why they say, I am he. It's ego I me. I am. And so many will come in my name saying, I am. They'll use the divine name, claim that they are Yahweh in the flesh here. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. This is just a marvelous comfort here of when you see all these things taking place, well, this must take place. It's not that, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and, you know, God's kind of washed his hands clean of us and left us to fend for ourselves here. But all these things, it's business as usual, if you want to put it that way, of all these things must take place. It's not out of God's control. It's not, you know, he hasn't left you and abandoned you here. But all these things must take place. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So we have that language of beginning. So kind of getting back to your point here, Chris, of all these things are going to be taking place. And so whether or not we want to see that starting at the 70 AD? I don't know. That seems maybe a bit of a stretch here. But just on this side of the fall, all of these things are taking place all throughout you know, the flood and all these things, the destruction of every, every which place here. So all these things are just but the beginning of, birth pain, of the birth pains. I've never really looked until doing the study for this of what it means, the birth pains here. And so what comfort does that give us? And so we're going to look at a couple passages. The first is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3. So I'm going to back up to 5, verse 1 to 3. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. We are not in darkness, brothers, for that day for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. 
So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So he's also bringing out this idea of these labor pains that will come upon suddenly on a pregnant woman here. So the sudden destruction that will come. So then we also see this pop up in John 16 as well. Find this. John 16, 16. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I mean by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So he's speaking here of, again, these labor pains. And so when this woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because in all likelihood she's going to die in childbirth during this time. So she has sorrow that her time has come. But then when the baby's born, I'm not a mother, but everything I've heard is you forget everything else that just happened, that great joy of the new life that you have there. Forget everything else that's just happened, that great joy that you do have. And so we have Jesus here speaking about the end of the age coming and all of these things taking place, but it's the beginning of the birth pains. And so as it gets closer to that time, the contractions are going to get worse. They're going to become more frequent and more intense. But then what is the end of that destruction? It's not destruction at all, but it's new life. And so all of this is taking place. All these pains of warfare, bloodshed, famine, all these things are taking place to bring new life, to usher in the new creation of the new heavens and the new earth that is coming forth. And so we should take great comfort in these passages and not let all these different preachers, televangelists, you know, preach in hellfire and brimstones of we got to watch out for the coming raptures if you're going to miss the coming of the Son of Man. Don't think you'll miss that whenever he comes in great glory. Or to use all these things, of, you know, these scare tactics and everything, but rather it should be of great comfort for us of, well, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to stink. There's going to be warfare. There's going to be famine, all this stuff, but it's just the beginning and new life will come as a result of that. So, you know, as you're giving birth, you're not enjoying life at the moment, but you know what's waiting for you. And so you endure knowing of that great joy that, that will come at the new birth here. 
So there's a great comfort that we have here. Any thoughts on that before we keep going in our passage? Yeah, Chris. It makes me think of um, where he says, resist not evil, and the turning of the cheek and sort of like saying, well, these terrible things, you just take it. I mean, it's, I mean, that's always such a hard one, right? Resist not evil. What? Wait a minute, you know, right? It's uh, stumbling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's just it. I mean, lays these things out like, wake up. I mean, we're yeah. talking about like a complete revolution of what you thought mm-hmm. was going on. So it just makes me think of that, accepting those pains and yeah. taking turning the other cheek. I don't know. And actually, it's a good segue into what I was want to bring up today as well, is these heroes of the faith, we'll see here in a few moments about Jesus speaking about endurance. And so that we can't help but go back to Hebrews of these great cloud of witnesses, and then we run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and all the shame And so we have all these people set before us, these great heroes of the faith, who during all these times of warfare, bloodshed, famine, all these things, they joyfully endured to such an extent that we can't even fathom suffering and persecution in today's day and age. There's two or three different martyrs that we want to talk about this morning, of the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas and the martyrdom of Polycarp. So these were all happening in the early church that was all going on. And so we have this account of, from the own writing of Perpetua. And so she was like a 22-year-old woman. She had just recently given birth to a baby. but She was a Christian during this time of persecution. And so she was going to be arrested and everything. And so her father comes. She says, My father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolution. Father, said I, do you see this vase here, for example, or water pot or whatever? Yes, I do, said he. And I told him, could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. Well, so too I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. So she's facing this arrest, facing this impending persecution that is coming on. And she's saying, I'm a Christian. I nothing else than that here. And so as time goes on, they're going to be hurried off for a hearing. So she's dragged before the rulers or the governor there. And so he sees, you know, her father coming to her, pleading with her to just renounce Christ. You know, save yourself, save the baby, save us, all that. And so she's saying, you know, I will not. He said, are you a Christian? She said, yes, I am. So uh, she persists in her faith. Um, and so then she was sent to prison. So I sent the deacon Pomponius straight away to my father to ask for the baby. But father refused to give him over. But as God willed, the baby no longer had desire for the milk, nor did I suffer my, any inflammation. So I was relieved for any anxiety for my child and any discomfort. And so as she's going on, she's, you know, has no longer any contact with her children or anything. She's in prison. They're going to be handing her over to wild beasts of all these 
all these Christians here. And so she joyfully goes. It says, let's see, this is, this is from someone later on recounting what happened. But the day of their victory dawned, and they marched from the prison to the amphitheater joyfully, as though they were going to heaven, with calm faces, trembling, if at all, with joy rather than fear. Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step, as, she, as the beloved of God, as a wife of Christ, putting down everyone's stare by her own intense gaze. So here she is facing going to the beasts and then later being killed by the sword because the beasts weren't doing it quick enough. And so all these Christians are joyfully going to it, knowing that this is only the beginning. It's only the beginning of the birth pains. There's new life ahead for us. So we just can't fathom that level of strength that the Lord would give us in that type of hour. And same with Polycarp, I won't read all the way through it, but this is taking place in like 155 AD is whenever he was uh, persecuted and put to death. But he's an old man. He's in his 80s at this point, of great renown, and he's going town to town and everything, and he hears that they're going to try and find him and arrest him. And so he could have made an escape this one night. But he says, no, my hour has come. And so he stays upstairs where he's at, until the police come and they're going to want to arrest him. And he says, well, can you give me a few hours to pray? I'm like, why would we do that? You know, but he makes them a meal. He sets it before the police who are going to arrest him and put him in prison. And there he goes praying for hours on end. So then they're just marveling at this of how do you have this kind of strength in this? You know, you could have run. Yeah, we probably would have caught you, but at least you could have run and tried to get away. He says, no, my hour has come. You know, I have great joy knowing what is set before me. And so he goes and he's put in like the amphitheater or whatever it is, and he's going to be burned alive and they're wanting to nail him to the spot or to the post and everything. He says, I'm not going to run away. This is, this is my hour. I go forth in great joy. And so he was burned alive, but he continued on, steadfast in the faith, lifting up prayers all the way. Polycarp. And so we just have these great examples, as graphic as they are, but just seeing all these heroes of the faith that have gone before us, of what a great level of faith the Lord had given them to endure such suffering. Because they had a marvelous grasp of all these words of Christ here of, well, you're going to see all these things, but you have the joy set before you, the one who has endured all these things for your sake and is waiting there on the finish line, waiting to receive you with open arms. So they go forth in great joy. Just marvelous examples. There's examples after examples here. But shameless plug, I'm starting to read through it, so, I mean, it's from... Pastor Wolf Mueller, so it can't be bad. But it's um, a martyr's faith in a faithless world. And so he talks about those two uh, martyrs, and he's using those as examples of here are the heroes that we should really be looking to. Not all the heroes, you know, in Hollywood or in government or any of that stuff, but rather these. A hero is one who has died, is willing to die for the faith, has endured all these things. And so that's who we should be looking to and not... You know, someone who's just 
filling their own barns and preying on the widow and the fatherless and filling their own houses with their own money. Rather, we should be looking to those who have gone before us, these great cloud of witnesses who are now seated before the throne in heaven. Any thoughts on those? We just want to give a couple examples. Just thinking of the, you know, being willing to die, being most extreme, but then something that's, you know, less than that is still something that's pretty extreme, which is being willing to give up one's livelihood. So, for example, if by confessing being a Christian, you might be, um, oh, I don't know, ostracized or seen as a problem or in today's day and age, maybe even persecuted for hate speech or something to this effect. And then, you know, pushed out of whatever field you might be in or, or you know, causing trouble. Mm-hmm. Much less than death, but maybe seeing it in that context is, yeah. might be helpful. I don't know. You have just all the persecution that's come all throughout time. So it's just taken on different forms to greater or lesser extent at different, different time periods, but just having that boldness to be able to stand fast in the faith and endure it. Especially nowadays, you know, all the hate speech and all the things they can come after you for simply saying a man's a man and a woman is a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where you really get to see the true test of the faith. You know, the burning of, you know, the gold and the silver, the refining of it, of through those tests and everything, you see the true faith and the fruits of that bearing forth of that resolve to stand fast in the midst of whatever kind of persecution, whether financially or anything else. Yeah, so all that is just the beginning of the birth pains that will bring about new life here. So then getting back into Mark 13, uh, verse 9 But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So we have both the right and the left hand kingdoms here. The synagogues are going to persecute you. The governors are going to persecute you. You're going to have persecution on both sides here. So they were stand before them and have to bear witness before them for my sake. The gospel must first be proclaimed. Throughout all those things, the gospel must, it is necessary for it to be proclaimed and to stand before them and give that bold proclamation of the faith. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
What a marvelous comfort that is. I mean, how often do we kind of get caught up of, okay, got to get the elevator speech down, you know, just pat, got to say, or know exactly what I'm going to say in every single instance, every different possibility of, you know, evangelism that could come before me. So he's saying, don't be anxious. Whatever the Holy Spirit, whatever is given, is given, passive. You're not doing it. It's given to you by the Holy Spirit to speak. So again, what a great comfort that it's not relying on us of, well, I've got to make sure I say every which way or everything in the exact right way, but that the Holy Spirit is going to use you. He's going to give you the words to speak in that hour like he has with all those martyrs who have gone before us. If in that hour, there's them saying with strong resolve of, I'm a Christian, and go forth in great joy, so that the Holy Spirit will give you that strength to endure as he gave them the strength. I mean, I don't know about you, but unless the Holy Spirit gives me the strength, I'm not going to be able to stand there as being burned alive or anything like that. But yet, the Holy Spirit gave him that resolve to stand there and boldly proclaim the faith. There's no way you could do that on your own. It's only by the gift of the Holy Spirit in giving you those words and that confidence to endure any kind of suffering that then you will be able to run with endurance that faith. And brother will deliver you over to death and the father, his child, and children are raised against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So finally here we get the explicit language of endurance. Of going back to Hebrews Hebrews 12 here, you know, run with endurance. And you have the one who's gone before you. So it's the author and perfecter in the English, but the language that is used there is the beginning and the end. I can't remember the exact Greek here. The archegos and the teleotes. And so the arche, think back to John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, in arche. So the beginning, the one who is the beginning, the author is how it's translated here. And then the perfecter, the teleotes. And so that root from telos to complete or the end, what Christ said on the cross of it is finished. The same root word is used there. And so the beginning, the author, and the perfecter. The one who started everything, the one who finished everything. He's the one that has gone before you and has run that race perfectly for your sake. And so the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's a lot here. A little hard to swallow some of the examples, but nonetheless important for us to think on, reflect on, and marvel at the gift that the Lord has given them. Any thoughts before we move on? Mm-hmm. Just that that endurance is to be understood, enduring in faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the language, I can't remember the exact root word of it, but it's kind of this foundation is the, the root word for it. So it's 
that which everything rests upon. So you can think of kind of like a bridge and everything. You have the strong foundation for the pillars and all that. So that's the foundation or the foundation of a house. So that's which, that is what everything else rests upon. So that faith is that, that foundation. Yeah, got a question up here. My question is, it says, and the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Mm -hmm. Does that, okay, that means before any of this happens, the gospel has to reach every nation on earth. Is that what that's saying? I'm not quite sure. Not sure on that one. Let's see. Study note says, first... Before the end of the world and Judgment Day to all nations, Jesus announces God's plan to include the Gentiles. It's not very helpful on that. Mm-hmm. But so we have this idea of, you know, after Christ has come and everything, you know, has ascended into heaven, then everything else, you know, goes out to the right. Gentiles and to all the nations, the, the genos there. And so I don't... It really depends on how you understand first, that word first there. Because we had, um, oh, where was it beforehand? I think it was in Pastor's Nice study, looking at two weeks out, the gospel text. But that language of first, and if it's meaning in a linear sense or in a, the most important, like, first of all, you know, most importantly, it must be proclaimed to all the nations. Big nations at the beginning. So once it's been proclaimed to the Gentiles, which it has been through the Roman Empire, it's been completed. Yeah, because, I mean, it's not, I mean, the word has gone out to everyone to some extent or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, there wasn't much of an answer, but I may, I'm, gonna, I'm cu- really curious about that verse, so I'm actually going to do some digging around and seeing, because I'm sure different churches probably have a heyday with that of the ushering in of the thousand-year rule and reign, I, I bet. You know, write me a note. Mm-hmm. They hadn't thought about that. That's a good one. I'm, I'll be curious to do some research there. Anything else on that one? All right. So getting into verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. So who is this abomination of desolation? We're not going to spend too much time on that because we could 
I'm sure there's a million different theories out there of what or who he is speaking of here. But depending on who you talk to, it could be the Romans here of when you see them standing where he or they ought not to be. He is kind of a collective singular there. Where he ought not to be, namely in Jerusalem. So speaking about the 70 AD of them standing where they ought not to be. And I'm not sure why in parentheses the let the reader understand why it's in red. It seems like a mark kind of insertion there of, hey, pay attention to this. And so I don't know why in our Bibles it has it in red. But again, in the original text it wasn't, there weren't any marks of, hey, by the way, Jesus spoke these words and not these other ones. So don't let that trip you up. But yeah, that didn't make much sense why it's in red there. But let the reader understand of, you know, when these things take place. He's saying, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where you ought not to be, and those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So even if you're on the housetop, if you're on the mounds or whatever, you know, don't take anything with you, just go. Because the, the destruction is imminent here. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants, are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. So, you know, even for you know, the great mourning for those who are pregnant and those who are nursing, you know, they're not going to be able to flee as quickly or anything like that, flee the destruction. And pray that it wouldn't happen in winter, you know, when it's harsher, harsher climates and, you know, you're not going to be able to flee quite as easily. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So there's great tribulation that is coming. You know, not these little famines, not these little things that, that just pale in comparison to the destruction that is is going to be taking place here. See, and then in verse 20, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And so it seems as though he's speaking of, you know, the events of 70 AD. They're going to be taking place of, you know, this great destruction that is going to come upon the land. And especially, you know, those who are in Judea, you know, fleeing to the mountains. It kind of seems to suggest that. But then we even see this, you know, kind of pointing to the the last day of, you know, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human would be saved. You know, it's a great blessing that he, come, he came when he did. Because if he hadn't, you know, told destruction would have occurred. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. The great comfort that, you know, he's got you all along. All these things are taking place, but... 
but for the sake of those whom he chose. He shortened the days. He shortened the time of that suffering for the sake of his people. And then if anyone comes, you know, again, uh, look, here is a Christ, or look, there he is. You know, don't believe it. Even if they perform signs and wonders. I mean, even Pharaoh's magicians perform signs and wonders. What's the goal of that? Well, it's Satan leading, trying to lead you astray of, well, they could do it, so. Hmm. So if anyone comes doing all those things, it's all to lead you astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. Again, he's sounding this again and again of being on guard and looking for these times, you know, be on guard against those who would come proclaiming that they were the Christ or any, any such thing. But he's told you all these things. He's told you what's going to take place. Even though he's not given Peter, James, John, and Andrew the secret formula of, well, this one sign, you've got to look for that, and then you'll know it's the end times. Well, I think when the end times do come or when the destruction of Jerusalem happened, there was no mistaking it of what was, what was taking place. But be on guard, because he's told us all of these things. We only have a minute left. We'll have more to speak of next week, of still carrying on with the same theme. Didn't quite run through it all. So we'll get this idea of being on guard, keeping awake. And then we'll get closer into the events of Holy Week in chapter 14 and following. So we'll begin that trip here. Are there any other questions before we finish off? You'll just have to come back next week. <laughs> the cliffhanger for next week. Gotta keep everyone interested, but <laughs> if there's anything else? The Lord be with you.